if you are between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you're excused to kids' club. It's fun to watch them all run. Well, this summer we have been working through a series in the book of Psalms called Songs for Real Life. The heart and the gist of this series is how studying the Psalms opens up our prayer life to the Lord. How realizing who God is and who we are, how it puts everything in perspective for us. And in a lot of ways gives us the words we need to endure the situations that we walk through. We've walked through a litany of Psalms already, whether it's confessing God as our shepherd who can walk us through even the darkest of places because he's with us, or that's confessing sin like we did in Psalm 51. These psalms give verbiage to us and in a lot of ways free us up to express ourselves to the Lord. As we've started every psalm, we start with a a quote from a church father, and here's another one. John Calvin says this in his commentaries. He says, I've been accustomed to call this book And I think not inappropriately, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He continues on to say it this way. He says, there is not an emotion of which which anyone could be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. If there's something that stirs in your soul, according to John Calvin, it's to be found in the book of Psalms. So whether that's an, an excitement or fear or anger or hurt or woundedness, it's all here. This morning we are walking into the 69th Psalm and we will find, as Calvin pointed out, this Psalm led by the Holy Spirit is wrought with all kinds of human emotion. It's full of it. Let me read Psalm 69 for us. It's going to be the longest Psalm I think I read the whole thing of. Psalm 69, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek to be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach me have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. 
When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I, that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with hooves and horns. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the sea and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Psalm 69. Even just reading that, you get a sense of how wrought with emotion it is. It's just full of feelings and angst. As David recounts the situation he finds himself in. And because it's this way, the structure of the psalm moves around on a little bit. So I just want you to know up front that as we teach it, we're going to move around a little bit with it. Uh, trying to organize it a little bit by its thoughts. So let's dig in. Verse 1, the psalm begins with David crying out of desperation. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. He goes on to say, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. And you start to see this very vivid picture. David is sinking. David feels like he's drowning, in fact. He can't get a grip. He has nothing to stand on, and the waters just keep coming up and coming up 
and coming up. And according to verse 3, it seems like he's been here for a while. In fact, he says, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Not only is he drowning, he's exhausted. He's called out to God so many times he has a sore throat. He's looked for God so thoroughly, and yet his eyes are dim with darkness. He can't see anything. And just being a human, just being a human, we have to appreciate this overwhelmed sensation that's come over him. Because no doubt sometime in your life you felt this way. Sometime you have felt overwhelmed, much like David, maybe even abandoned. It's something that's similar to humanity. And he starts to open up why in verse 4. He says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Would it I did not steal, must I now restore? And you start to see this little picture of David being persecuted. Now this is true for a lot of us. Whether it's just true for you as a junior hire, where you got picked on and isolated for no good reason, or that becomes true for you as an adult, where in your job you get isolated, put to the side, you don't know why, but everything seems stacked against you. These emotions are true to the human experience. And these are words, real words, David cries out to God. Do you see me? Do you know what I'm going through? God, please do something. You have to just feel David cry out to God. And if we dig a little deeper, David shows us the circumstances that are causing his situations. The circumstances that would be very appropriate for many in our day. He says this in verse 7. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. The dishonor has covered my face. And he continues, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And what David says in 7 through 9 is this overwhelmed place that I'm at, this place where I'm drowning and I'm struggling to keep my foot on something, why the water comes up, has all been brought upon because I'm clinging to you. I'm here, God, because of you. It's for your sake that people are casting me aside, in verse five, 7, for you that I have borne reproach. David's here because of his allegiance to God. He's been cast away. He's been dishonored for his allegiance to God. Even his own family has been rejecting him. Strangers to my brothers, aliens to my mother's sons. You should know the 69th Psalm is the third most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, quoted by two different Gospels and Paul in a couple of his epistles. But this very picture is pointing us to Jesus, to the persecution Jesus experienced in John 7, 5. It says about Jesus' family that not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers didn't even believe in him when he was alive. That, that strengthens, that bolters, 
bolsters the testimony that if you should read through your Bible this week, you want to pick up the book of James or the book of Jude, you have two men here who are the half-brothers of Jesus who put their faith, their trust in him, and then go on to write about it. But through his life, they all rejected him. And that had to cause him serious pain. But rejection is not where it ended. Mark 3.21 says this, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. And it's possible. It's possible that some of you are walking through that. That your allegiance to Jesus Christ has made people in your life think you're crazy. Who think you're loony. It's pretty common these days. As a freshman in high school, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I'm pretty sure my parents thought I joined a cult. Uh, They saw changes in my life, but they didn't know what to attribute it to. They thought it was different. But they didn't know it was Jesus. It's pretty common these days that this happens when people genuinely give their lives to Christ out of a culture that likes to claim him, but doesn't like to follow him, that when people start following him, we like to call it names. We like to call it lunacy. We like to call it fanaticism. In reality, it's following Jesus. And this allegiance to God, this allegiance to his word, is what David is claiming. And now David's paying a price for it in his own generation. He says in verse 10, this is me moving around, by the way, because we're going to keep moving around in the psalm. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Look at that. David's crying out to God. He stops. He humbles himself with fasting, and people are turning on him for that. His heart is broken. He's fasting, and he's being mocked for it. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. When he moves into this place of mourning of what's happening in his culture, he gets ridiculed. So much so that in verse 11, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Does any of this hit home for you? Is any of this your experience? That you'd be ridiculed for following Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now let's watch those verbs. All those who desire to live. This isn't claim the name of. This is live out Jesus Christ in your life. If you want to call Jesus the Christ, you want to call him the king, you want to give him authority over you so that you're going to do what he asked you to do, you're not going to do what he tells you not to do, you're going to go where he tells you to go, Jesus makes it clear, Paul makes it clear, and Psalm 69 makes it clear, you'll absolutely be rejected for it. In the words of Timothy, count on being persecuted. In church, whether this is a psalm 
that you're already seeking out and praying, you know this is true. The climate in our country is a changing. Christianity is about to go from being a majority culture where we say anything we want, go anywhere we want, do whatever we want, and we get away with it, to being a minority culture where claiming the name of Jesus is going to get you a heap of trouble. Claiming anything as authority other than somebody else's experience is going to get you in a heap of trouble. Our culture is shifting If you want to claim Jesus as your king, if you want to use his word as authoritative, and inevitably we could apply this to any number of situations in our culture right now, whether it's a move towards gender neutralization or the fight for the rights of the unborn, know this, the heat is turning up. I got two things I want to impart with you about that. As the heat continues to get turned up on us, don't be afraid. Our God is still king. He is still reigning, and he will reign forevermore. None of this challenges him in the slightest. And here's the better part for us. The church will only be strengthened because of it. It'll be a purifying force for us. We're to whittle down our testimony. And it'll make us more about him. The church has always, always, always done really well in times of persecution. Because it's our testimony when we stand up and say, despite this, 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 and this, I claim Jesus Christ. When we struggle, when we suffer, when the world watches us do that, And they go, why are they doing that? And Jesus is the only answer we can give. It bolsters our testimony. And friends, whether this is a psalm, you've prayed a lot or not, you might fold over a corner. In the next couple of decades, we're going to spend more and more time in it. Because it's going to be our experience. And why this psalm absolutely gives us a vocabulary to express ourselves when we walk through these situations. It gives us a vocabulary to express pain, to express loneliness, to express isolation. By the way, it gives us a vocabulary by the mouth of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God is really okay with you expressing all of these things. To say this to God is to align yourself with Scripture, not to identify outside of it. Take comfort in that if that's where you're at. David also gives us some things in this psalm that can be instructive to us. Things that we can hold on to. Things we can cling to when we find ourselves opposed. When we find ourselves isolated. When we find ourselves without a footing. Let's go back to verses 5 and 6 for a moment. Though these psalms lack imperatives, they don't tell us what to do. We can look into David's example and pull some principles. And the first one we want to consider in verse 5 and 6 is that in the face of opposition, David acknowledges that he falls short. That David's not leading the perfect life. David doesn't have it nailed. And churches, we walk in times of opposition 
one of the parts of our vocabulary that we need to lead with is we aren't perfect. We've all blown it. And that's the reality of the gospel in our lives. Because the first step in any explanation of the gospel is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That means me. Me first. I've blown it. And the only reason I can stand here professing Jesus to you at all is because he's forgiven me of all of my trespasses and all of my sins and all the times I've fallen short and all the times I've blown it. Just like the offer's been made available to you. David starts by acknowledging that he falls short, saying this, in verse 5, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. God knows everything. He knows David's testimony. He knows David's story. And let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. And David takes another step. He takes another step praying that his life and the way he leads his life would not bring dishonor or shame to other people. And it's huge because he owns his failures. He owns his missteps. And church, this goes a long way for us in removing our pride out of the situation. It gives us some clarity. And this is the Matthew 7, 3 moment that we all need when we stop for a moment and consider all of the specks and all of the logs in our own eyes before we try to apply them to other people. Now, absolutely, we've got a spot to stand in culture, to claim the word of God, to claim it with authority, but we've got to do it with a view towards, my, my eyes are full of toothpicks and forests. It bolsters our witness when we preach the gospel, not only towards somebody, but from us. It gives us the chance to build a common ground when we face opposition. And David starts with this part. He acknowledged that he, he falls short. And having acknowledged that, David also in his psalm, as a second principle, commits his entire situation to the Lord. We find this in the middle of the psalm. He says in verse 13, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. He steps out and he acknowledges, As for me, I'm calling out to you, my God, my King. He put, places himself underneath God and says, At an acceptable time, God, in your timing, at an acceptable time, O oh God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. In your timing, God, take care of this. It's in your hands. It's about you. It's not about me. And even in this moment, he makes it about God because I know you love me and your love is abundant. It's the abundance of his steadfast love, his has said where he loves us with this radical love. 
And his answer to us is not according to our deeds, but his saving faithfulness. And God will save us. And friends, there's no surety in Scripture whether God will save you today, tomorrow, nine months from now, or when you reach heaven's door. But he will save you. And as David walks through this, we skip down a couple of verses to 19, where David says, having acknowledged and committed his situation to God, he commits his emotions and his experience to God as well. When he says in 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I have looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I've found none. And David says something we always have to be reminded of. That God knows us. He knows us intimately. And he knows us well. And he knows what we're walking through. And he knows where we're pained. And he knows where we're wounded. And he knows who our enemies are. And he knows how we're mistreated. And rather than just wallowing in that, David commits these things to the Lord. God, you know all of these things. And these are for you. And though he says, I've looked for pity, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. And that was true for David. But guys, it's not true for you. Because we walk in a different administration than he did because of Jesus Christ. That should you walk through these times, you sing over and over and again, in Christ the solid rock I stand. And he will carry you. He will be your foothold through all these kinds of situations and messes. David acknowledges and he commits this all to the Lord. And starting in verse 22, he takes what's called an imprecatory pause. And if imprecatory is not a word in your vocabulary, it means to call curses down upon Merriam-Webster defines it as words said in anger. David unravels a litany of emotion. And as he does so, it's one of the things that makes the Psalms so real to human life. But at the same time, you have to appreciate what David is saying when he starts to unravel himself emotionally as he's continuing to commit all of these things to the Lord Because it becomes about the Lord's judgment. Let me read it again. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Now I've never prayed, let someone's loins tremble continually. But it doesn't sound peaceful. It seems he's calling wrath upon and he starts to build it and build it and build it. By asking God in 24, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. I read this section to you, okay, because it's got strong language in it in Hebrew. 
And sometimes when we go to God in prayer, we feel like we've got to have this really cleaned up, helpful vocabulary. As if God can't take our real emotion. As if we really can't unfurl the litany of what we're really thinking, what we're really believing to God. And let me just tell you in Hebrew, David lets it all out. He unfurls it all. And in fact, 27 and 28, he takes it to an entirely new level. Add to them punishment upon punishment. He's praying here. May they have no acquittal from you. Literally, don't forgive them. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Discussions of whether that's actually the book of life. Don't ever save them. Don't ever bring them into your kingdom. Or if that's the book of the living in terms of those who are still alive, is he asking them to be killed? Let them not be enrolled amongst the righteous. And you see this litany of raw emotion flowing from David, which tells you a couple of things. One, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to walk through this run of emotion. So that when you pray to God, even in the dark pits, even when you feel like you're drowning and the water's coming up on you, please know that God can handle anything you have to say to him. He could take all of it. Even begging the judgment of those who stand against you. But appreciate, even in that, David commits it all to the Lord. That this judgment is God's to judge. He doesn't say things like, hit him with a random bus. Or, I want to shoot him. It's not his judgment to make. He makes it all God's judgment, committing even the judgment to the Lord. And because this whole situation that David finds himself in, though hard and harsh, has been committed to God, even trusting him for the judgment. And friends, let's be honest about that. There's some serious trust in here to be standing in a place where you feel like the waters are coming over your head and you're drowning, but to trust God even in those moments. And you can see him talk himself into trust as you work through this psalm. He comes to a place of worship. Because he's committed everything to God. He's committed his situation to God. He's committed even the judgment of his situation to God. Because of all that, he's able to trust God. And he worships him from a very real place in 29. He says, I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. It doesn't remove his pain. It doesn't remove his affliction. It doesn't remove the loneliness he's feeling. But salvation puts it all in perspective. Even though I'm hurt, I'm in pain, let your salvation pick me up, let it set me on high. In verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. And David acknowledges more than sacrifices, more than just going before Lord and, and giving him what you think he might want or just going through trite motions, worshiping God in a hard place will please him. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. He uses these words of comfort for us who are in need. And then he calls for universal praise in the end. And this is always our great hope. Because David looks forward to the ultimate restoration when his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson returns to redeem the world and says this in 34, Let heaven and earth praise him, the sea and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it, and the offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. As David works through this 69th Psalm, expressing the downcastness of his situation, know that you're always free to communicate to God. Know that God is big enough to take any language you want to bring to his house. There's nothing he can't shoulder coming from you. And as you walk through situations that might make you feel overwhelmed, as you walk through situations that make you feel oppressed, and as aforementioned, clinging to Jesus Christ in our modern day is going to walk us into some of this, let's be mindful of a couple of principles from this psalm. Let's lead with our own confession that we're not perfect, that we've not nailed it either. And let's commit our situation and even the judgment of our situation to God so that it's not about me, it's about him. Friends, I have no idea where we're headed as a country or where our culture is going. But I can tell you this, Jesus Christ is not worried about it. And God the Father is still sitting on the throne. So we'll hand it all to him and we'll keep being faithful and we'll keep walking through it. And because of who he is and because of what he's done, we'll praise him. And like David, we'll look forward to this ultimate restoration when Jesus Christ comes back to redeem and to restore the world. As we've looked at the 69th Psalm, there's so much here. David speaks these words of desperation, these words of anxiety and words of fear, words of judgment and words of trust. And God Here's every single one of them. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, know that God desires you to talk to him through it and know that he desires to save you out of it. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look at your word, it is our authority. Even when we open up a Hebrew prayer and praise book, these songs, God, written by men of old. It's your word. It's our authority. God, you've given it to us so that we would know your heart. We would know your perspective. We'd know what you think about us and what you think about what we're going through. Father, there's not a single person here, God, that you don't know the intimate details of our heart what pains us, what's wounded us. And Father, you're crying out into those situations with the name of your Son.
because there's no restoration could be found anywhere else other than in his name. And everything will ultimately be fulfilled in his name. So we lift high the name of Jesus Christ and we praise him. Amen. Will the ushers come forward as we...